The first lesson uh, this morning will come from Luke chapter 1 that was just read uh, for us. I want to begin by reading this uh, quote by Sally Lloyd-Jones. She says this, Some people think the Bible is a book of rules, telling you what you should and shouldn't do. The Bible certainly does have some rules in it. They show you how life works best, but the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about God and what He has done. Other people think the Bible is a book of heroes showing you who you should live like or copy. The Bible does have some heroes in it, but most of the people in the Bible aren't heroes at all. They make some really big mistakes. They get afraid. They run away. At times, they're downright mean. So the Bible isn't a book of rules, and it isn't a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. There are lots of stories in the Bibles, but in the Bible, but they're all telling one big story. And it takes the whole Bible to tell this story. And at the center of this story is a baby. Sally Lloyd-Jones write this, writes this, and we are getting to this point in the story. As we've been unfolding lessons and carols, we've been moving forward to where we're now in the New Testament. And we're looking at this announcement in which the angel Gabriel is, is telling Mary that she will be the mother of the uh, Messiah, Jesus. This is known in, as the Annunciation. As you saw on the screen, um, this has been the subject of much art in the Christian tradition, uh, specifically in the Middle Ages and in the Renaissance. This was a big part of what, um, uh, what many artists gave their time and attention to, to try to tell this moment um, in the story. Uh, it's also a, uh, what is seen as a divide within Orthodox Church and the Protestant Church and the Catholic Church. Oftentimes the Annunciation is seen a little bit differently uh, by each of those. In the Orthodox Church, uh, the Annunciation is a big part of their festival year. It's a, big, it's a feast that they have uh, that is a major part of the calendar in ways that is not necessarily true of other uh, church uh, traditions. Um, so we're going to look at the, uh, one of the questions that you heard in there is, how is this actually possible? That's inside the text. And then also want to see, um, as a result of that, who is it that God is using and how, to, how do we respond uh, to that this morning? So it's impossible to understand this moment, this Annunciation story, without seeing the story right before it and then right after it. So it falls between two stories about someone named uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth. Zechariah was a priest and a prophet. His wife, Elizabeth, they were not able to have children. Um, and so they were, they were serving faithfully in the temple, I mean, in the, in the local synagogue there, uh, but were not able to have kids until uh, they actually have a similar experience to this, almost identical to what happens to Mary. An angel comes and says, your wife uh, is going to have a child. Zechariah doesn't believe it. He has disbelief. He ends up not being able to talk for a series of months um, up until this time. And then you say the baby's name is going to be John. John's going to come and he's going to do this. And then so you see the Mary story follow it and is a very uh, similar, it's a parallel uh, type of story which is there, which is similar to another story in the Old Testament about Abraham and Sarah uh, that happens in the same way. So much so that you see that God must be doing something unique or must be trying to tie a thread together of what it is and how it is that he is working in the world when he talks about the Annunciation. So how is it possible Zechariah asked that question that his wife would have a child. And then Mary says the same thing. How is it possible that I would have a child um, that's there? So we want to begin by trying to look at that, uh, the answer to that question. Um, so Mary is this young, likely teenage uh, young girl. Uh, she is betrothed to uh, a guy named Joseph. 
Um, and in that world, betrothal was like engagement, but even more so, you had to legally break it off um, in a divorce type of situation if you wanted to end it one day. And so when she finds out she has a child and it's not Joseph's child, that obviously is, is very troubling for uh, Joseph. So there's questions around that. How is that happening? Not only is Mary, uh, you know, this young Jewish girl who likely would not have traveled far outside of her own town. She probably would not have gone to school and been literate. Um, she's not someone that you would have thought, yes, when God is going to enter into the world, when he is going to show up and answer and fulfill all these promises, who's he looking for? Well, Mary would not have been a likely candidate. And another problem with that is she also was from Nazareth. And Nazareth is sort of this town on the north side. I mean, God, when he's doing things, he's doing it down on the south side. He's doing it in Judea. He's doing it in Jerusalem, right? That's where, uh, that's where things are. Why would he bypass the temple to show up in the world? It doesn't make any sense. Why Nazareth? Why Mary? Um, it's a nobody, as one uh, pastor said. It's a nobody from nowhere, right, who's never even been with a man. How in the world is a child going to come through that type of situation that's there? And Mary tells us in some ways herself that, uh, she reminds us that God is always looking down at the lowly. His, his mind always heads toward the poor and the lowly in these situations, that he has not forgotten the humble that's there. But how is this possible? The other reason that this is a question is because, um, as you can imagine, a virgin birth um, is something that is quite a challenge to uh, believe. And specifically in the last hundred years, it has been um, the object of a lot of attention in the academy uh, the last 150 years probably, um, and rationalist thought would immediately try to eliminate something like this from being a part of any belief system, right? So it's not a part of other religious traditions as well. You don't see a virgin birth show up um, in other traditions. And so many thinkers in the academy have tried to explain away the virgin birth with all sorts of other explanations to make it more natural um, of a situation that's there, which in some ways is a good instinct. But the challenge with that is even if you did, even if we could say, okay, it wasn't really a virgin birth, they just used a term or we misunderstand it meant maiden, not virgin, or whatever it would be that's there, you're still left, if you're going to believe and enter into the Christian story, you're still left with believing that there is a God who created the whole world at, by speaking into it. And then he sent his son, maybe naturally, right? Let's say we could do that. But then his son died, and then he resurrected him back to life. He's still believing in that. And then he created this church that moves on. So you're not actually getting rid of any of the miracles that are necessary for the Christian faith by doing this. And so if you're going to actually make the story make sense, it, it makes more sense for some kind of act like a virgin birth to happen where you would need a God from the outside to do something that humans can't do on their own in order to tie the threads of the story together. For God to really be God, then it would make sense for a virgin birth to actually um, be there. So how is it possible? It's only possible, as Mary says, not with humans. But with God, nothing is impossible, is what she says. So it's only possible with God. Number two is, so who is he using inside of this? Well, we've already mentioned Mary. We've already mentioned this uh, young girl that's there. But also you see Joseph who's there. And so you see this young tradesman who is, who is uh, seemingly just going about his life. His business is not big enough. Apparently he hasn't been successful enough in order to have a travel agent because when they're looking around, he didn't have a hotel planned ahead of time, right? So he's not uh, that important or that significant of a person who's there. Not just Mary and Joseph, but you actually see just in two chapters over in Luke chapter 3, the whole lineage of David's, of uh, Joseph's family back to David and all the way back to Abraham and actually all the way back to Adam in Luke, the whole lineage, the story, the genealogy of Jesus' life gets told. And in the middle of that, you see, okay, who is it that is significant, significant enough in the history of God's actions in the world? Who's significant enough to get named? And you see people from all over the place. You see a young 
sort of ruddy musician who is uh, working hard out in the field, and then he advances enough, he's successful enough, next thing you know, he gets named and he's king, and he moves on to a prominent place. His son, Solomon, is in the story as well. Solomon then is born of royal birth, he has the best education, he has all the money in the world, he has all the access in the world, he's living in all the right homes, right? So someone who's in a totally different now socioeconomic class. But you also see inside of the genealogy, you see people like Tamar, and you see... um, you see prostitutes who are named as a result of this that are inside the line of God that somehow when he is bringing his child into the world and he writes his genealogy, he doesn't scratch out Rahab's name, but he writes her name down and talks about how she is in the middle of the story that God is writing, that Jesus is coming through this line. And so who is it that he's using? It's not simply some sort of perfect cast, qualified, exactly who you'd think person from the right town with the right pedigree. God is using people from all sorts of different places and times, which should, as we think about how God is still active in the world today, encourage us to see that we are not disqualified and that God might be inviting us to join uh, the plan that's there. But the person who's at the center of the story that he's using is this young woman, Mary. So I want to loop back to her. This is actually one of the places where uh, there is some tension over how to understand this. Um, in two different times in Luke, this language that has often been called Mary, Hail Mary, full of grace, Um, That language is used there, and it became uh, part of the prayer life of the Catholic Church about a thousand years after Christ um, is the first time that we think that that became more common. And that became, as a result, not of the Greek translation, but of the Latin Vulgate. And so the Latin Vulgate uses a phrase, I know most of you read your Latin Vulgate this morning, but gratia plena is the phrase that is oftentimes, quote, misinterpreted. And so that does mean full of grace. And if it's true that Mary is full of grace, she has a grace in and of herself which she could dispense and give to you. She could distribute out that's there. And this is something that caught on inside of the Catholic Church uh, that became a point of departure with Protestants specifically, the way they understood Mary. If you go back and read, and, and most Catholic scholars will say this today, if you go back and read the Greek and read the New Testament of what is there, it means she is blessed, it means she has found favor with God, it means she is someone who has received grace, but not someone who possesses grace in and of herself. So that is the point of departure oftentimes on this specific text with uh, Catholic brothers and sisters. Um, just two weeks ago, Mike and I uh, drove up to Grand Rapids to go to an event at the Acton Institute. They were having an annual meeting, and Father Sirico, a uh, Catholic priest, was there And he was explaining there's lots of Protestants in the room, lots of Catholics in the room. This uh, think tank uh, that's helping uh, markets think through uh, virtuous, through a true and virtuous society. Um, That's what he does. And he said that oftentimes because he's a Catholic priest and finds himself in Protestant circles a lot, that Protestants will come ask him. And many of them are evangelizing him and saying, excuse me, Father, do you know who Jesus is? And he said he always replies, oh, yes, I know Jesus and I know his mother as well. That's his, you know, common response. And, and I think the humor of it probably gets at something that can be helpful among these debates that's there. But that is actually the distinction um, that's here is what's happening with Mary. But the thing that both Protestants and Catholics believe would agree on completely in Romans 2 is who is, who is it that God is using? Ultimately, the hero of the story is not Mary. The hero of the story is Jesus himself. Christ the child is the one that Uh, Luke is trying to hold up and say, let's look at who this is. And Mary knows that as well. That's why she writes a song in response. So lastly, what do you do about that when you see that inside of the story? How do you respond? How does Mary respond? Mary is seen as someone we should be, um, she is called blessed and she is called someone that we should uh, look at and see how she responds. She's clearly the person of faith, unlike Zechariah, who even though he was a priest, he did not believe the angel. Mary is submitting to and thinking about the angel. So 
how does she respond and how can we learn from that? So quickly, um, she, the first thing that Mary does is she goes to her OB, she gets a sonogram, and she finds out whether Gabriel was right, whether it was a boy or whether it was a girl. Then she and Joseph plan an epic gender reveal party on Instagram <laughs> to tell everybody about this child. No, that's not what she does. She hears from the angel, and she, she also hears the message that her relative, this Elizabeth, is six months ahead of her having a child. So, if she, so she runs to the next town where Elizabeth is in Zechariah. She goes to their house, knocks on the door, and finds out what's happening there. And if it's true that Elizabeth can have a child at her age, then maybe this message that she received from Gabriel could be true. Maybe the impossible that she sees being done in someone who's a little bit further along in their life and their journey than she is, maybe it could be true that what Gabriel said to her would come true as well. So she stays there for three months. Her first trimester, she spends with family, listening and thinking and pondering on what it is that God is doing and beginning to believe and beginning to step into this role that God is calling her into. So she finds confirmation in someone else who's further in the faith. Secondly, we see her stopping long enough for three months here to stop and to ponder on what it is that God is doing and then lastly, we see her at the end of chapter one. I didn't read it, but you can go read it this afternoon. She writes a song. <laughs> she actually responds to God for what he's done in her life by worshiping him. And we're going to close out this moment right now, this lesson, by singing a song. Uh, there's a song called Behold the Lamb of God, um, which gets at the names that Zechariah tell, or that, sorry, that Gabriel tells Mary that your child is going to be born with these names. Uh, many of them are listed there as son of the most high of taking on your father, uh, David, uh, and his throne eternally, of son of God is the language. And then John, uh, the baby of Elizabeth, uh, John the 